please. So our passage is uh, Luke 8 and verses 41 to 56. Luke 8, 41 to 56. Uh, I wonder if, and actually I'm sure you have at some point, uh, felt utterly helpless. You know, perhaps it's... Uh, Perhaps a member of your family is sick, don't know what to do. Perhaps it's something as serious as cancer, and you, along with so many others, would feel utterly helpless. Perhaps it's a question that's been asked. Perhaps some member of your family, perhaps someone in trouble, has asked for counsel or for advice or for some explanation as to why, and you have nothing. <laughs> you have no answer, you have no words, and uh, you feel just uh, quite helpless. Perhaps it's a, st a struggle in your own life. Perhaps it's some sin that you're struggling with, or perhaps it's some task that you have to attend to, and uh, you just feel that you can't do it. You just feel you have nothing to offer. You have no answer to give and no counsel to set before people and you have no strength of your own, well, these are situations where you feel utterly helpless. And that's the way this man must have felt, this, this Jairus. That's the way he must have felt, utterly helpless. You see, he has a daughter. He has a, a one and only child that the word that's used is the word that in the Old King James is translated only begotten. He's got one and only child. And that child is near death. And there's absolutely nothing that he can do, it seems. And so he comes in desperation to Jesus and he prostrates himself before the Lord Jesus and he worships the one whom he now believes is his only hope. This miracle is set before us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Mark tells us that uh, this man says to Jesus, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. So we want to think about this miracle then, this account of the healing of uh, the raising of Jairus' daughter. And we want to consider the material under uh, three headings, the man and the Lord and the lessons. And we begin by thinking about this man. Your heart really goes out to him. It's a desperate situation he's in. His heart must be broken because he thinks, oh, there's really no hope for my child. And so here's a situation that is uh, just uh, heart-wrenching. But accounts of miracles in the Gospels are not recorded 
for their emotional impact. Sometimes stories are told just for their emotional impact. But uh, the miracles are set before us in the Gospels for their instructional value. What they tell us about the Christian faith and more importantly what they tell us about the Christian God and about the Lord Jesus Christ in particular. We can also learn from this man about our faith and about the Christian religion. And we learn about uh, these vital matters uh, from this man. And what do we learn from this man then? Well, we notice that he is a worshiping man. Uh, This man who comes to Jesus for help. This man who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus in his desperation and in his need. He's a worshiping man. In verse 41, Luke says, Behold, he wants us to notice. Uh, That's um, the uh, New King James translation, but that's the idea there in verse 41. Uh, There came a man, behold, there was a man. Uh, Behold, a man came to Jesus. And what Luke is saying is now, take a look at this. This is remarkable. Uh, This is something... Uh, profoundly significant. Uh, Matthew says, a ruler came and worshipped him. Uh, He was a worshipping man. And what's so striking about this is that this man was a ruler. He was a ruler of the synagogue. Now, rulers of the synagogue were significant men. Uh, They basically ran the synagogue. Uh, They were religious leaders and rulers. They were in charge of who was going to read the scriptures in the synagogue. They were the ones who were in charge of who was going to give the lesson from the scriptures in the synagogue services. They basically oversaw the whole life of the synagogue, which was at the center of the religious life of the Jew. And so they were profoundly significant men. They were devout men. They were respected men. They were men esteemed in the religious community of the Jews. And in these days, about which we are reading here, these were men who in that community opposed Jesus. In Luke 23, 13 to 18, we read that the chief priests and the rulers and the Pharisees were called before Pilate And they said, away with him, give us Barabbas. So that was, generally speaking, their attitude towards Jesus. They were not a fan of his. They were not supporters of his. They were not interested in him. Rather, they would choose over him a criminal. And so they take Barabbas and they say, away with Jesus. And they call for his blood. And they are violently opposed to him. Well, Jairus was a member of that group. But Jairus stands out from the crowd. And Jairus swims against the stream. He's not going to go along with them. It didn't matter to him what they thought. It didn't matter to him what their perspective was towards the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows who Jesus is, and he knows that Jesus is his only hope. And so he goes to Jesus and asks for help. But more than that, he goes to Jesus and worships him. 
And he does so publicly, and he does so before the watching eyes of that religious community. So he cares not one whit for what people think. He comes to worship, and he comes to pray. That's the remarkable thing about this worshiping man. When William Wilberforce was just converted, he was struggling with whether he would stay in politics or whether he would find some other calling which he imagined might be more consistent with his new religious convictions. Well, he needed advice about this, so he went to see John Newton, who by then was a a venerable saint. So he goes to Newton's house, but he's afraid because Newton is well known. And he's afraid that if he goes in at that house, people will notice that and they will recognize and they will begin to associate him, Wilberforce, with those evangelicals. And he didn't want to be associated with those evangelicals. And he was concerned how that might affect him and impact his life. And so he walked around and around the block several times before he mustered the courage to actually go in. Well, Newton encouraged him to remain in politics, and you, I think, know the rest of the story. He overcame that fear, that fear of being identified with God's people, that fear of being identified as a follower of Christ. And in fact, he then became a very bold witness for Christ, and a very bold follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and a man who was witnessing to anything that moved, and a man who sought to glorify the Lord Jesus in every aspect of his life. He got over his fear, and I wonder if you have. I wonder if you're unafraid to be bold for the Lord Jesus Christ, to be publicly acknowledged as a worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ. You raise your Christian flag high and readily. And you're unafraid to say, yes, I belong to him. I'm a Jairus, and I'm ready to bow before the Lord Jesus, and I'm ready to worship the Lord Jesus, no matter what they say, and no matter what they think, and No matter what their opinion is about the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm a follower, I belong to Him, this is where I take my stand, right before the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you're like a gyrus, then you're you're like a little girl that you read about in, in the Civil War, the American Civil War. She was standing on her porch in Northern Territory in a Confederate Army is marching along the road in the front of her home. She's in her early teens. She sees the Confederate army with their Confederate flag, and she runs into the house. She grabs a Union flag, and she comes back out onto the porch again. It's a true story. And she wraps herself in that flag. She says, I'm not a Southerner. I'm a Northerner. I'm going to tell you right now where my allegiance is. These are my people. This is where I belong. This is where my loyalty is fixed. And uh, the commander of the, uh, the Confederate troop, uh, name escapes me now, and he, he stops the procession and he gets off his horse 
and he turns to the young girl and he salutes her. Different allegiances, but he respects her. Well, you're like that as a Christian then. And it doesn't matter. And you're determined. This is where I belong. This is where I take my stand. I'm a worshiper of Jesus, no matter what. No matter what my friends say. No matter what my family thinks. This really matters. And you own the Lord Jesus. Well, this was this Jairus. He was a a worshiping man. And he, secondly, was a desperate man. He's a desperate man. His daughter lay dying. She's not just sick. She's not just slightly troubled. She's she's dying. And every child is, is precious. And his child would be precious to him. And so, oh, you know, I've been so blessed. My family is healthy. And I don't know what it's like to lose a child. My father did. And it was desperate for him. Rudyard Kipling lost a child as well. Rudyard Kipling wrote um, Jungle Book. Maybe you've, maybe you've read that or maybe you've seen... I think there's probably one or two movies made of it. Rudyard Kipling had, had one boy, one son, one child, and his son was killed in 1915 in uh, World War I. And uh, Kipling said this about the loss of his son. He said, nothing matters much, really, when one has lost one's only son. It wipes the meaning out of things. Nothing matters really when one has lost one's only son. It wipes the meaning out of things. Now, as a Christian, that's not true. Even if you lose a loved one, even if you lose a child, it doesn't wipe the meaning out of things because you're a worshiper of Christ. But I tell you that story, and I give you that quote, so that we might have some sense of what this man must be experiencing as he comes to Jesus, and what a struggle must grip his heart, and what pain must afflict his soul. His child, now the one and only child, is about to die. And before the story is over, she's dead. So he's a desperate man. And then thirdly, he's a praying man. No wonder he's desperate. And no wonder he prays because he has a God to pray to. How tragic and how awful is the state of, a, of an atheist. You know, somebody said, you know, atheists walk around, they say, oh, what a beautiful sunset, what a beautiful landscape. Something happens to them and uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing and they... And this person says, well, you know, an atheist is somebody who doesn't know who to thank. You're filled with thanksgiving because something wonderful is is set before you. And and who do you thank? You can't say thank God. But it gets more desperate than that when you're in trouble. When you're desperate, who do you turn to? Well, this man knew who to turn to because he is a worshiping man. He is a man who loved the Lord Jesus Christ and, and believed in him. So he comes and he prays. Matthew says that he pled, come and lay your hands on her. 
that she may be healed and she may live. And so uh, Luke tells us that he, uh, verse 41, he implored. He comes to Jesus and he implores. That word means to, to plead with somebody to come alongside of you to help. Come here. I need someone with me in this. I can't be alone in this. I can't face this on my own. I can't deal with this on my own. I can't resolve the situation on my own. I, I plead with you to come alongside of me to be here with me and help me in this situation. And so he implores the Lord Jesus Christ to heal his child and save his child from death. He, uh, he's a praying man. And we surely are we're praying people, are we not? And we plead, well, on occasion we plead for physical healing. But mostly we're pleading for spiritual life. Now we're pleading, we're pleaders before God. We are those who cry out to God. And we're always before the throne of grace because we're pleading. And we're pleading for the spiritual lives of our children. As I'm speaking, I can hear little voices. And it reminds me that this is what we are. We are pleaders before God for the lives of these little ones. Oh, thank God that they have physical life and stamina and they're whispering to you and you're trying to keep them quiet and all the rest of that. There's life in them, but is there spiritual life? Well, that's what we plead for. That's what we're crying out to God for. Charles Spurgeon's father used to go and preach and go and bring the word. And he used to feel guilty sometimes because he'd go on a Sunday and he'd go over here and he'd go there and he'd go and preach. And he was worried about the fact that he might be neglecting his children. And then he came back <clears throat> on a Sunday and he, he heard his wife Pleading, pleading with God. She was by herself and <clears throat> he heard her pleading for the children, pleading for the lives of her children, pleading for their, their spiritual regeneration. And he said, well, I can safely go and preach the word to others because here is one who pleads for my children, for our offspring." Well, that's who we are, isn't it? We're following in their footsteps. We're like this man. We're worshipers of Jesus. And we understand desperation because there are dead people all around us and some dearer to us than life itself. But we also know about this. We know about prayer. And we're pleaders. Well, then he's a confident man also, this man. He's a confident man. You know, there are some commentators, some people, they, the easiest thing to, to find is fault. They can find fault just at the drop of a hat. And they say that, you know, this man is he's, he's weak faith, you know, because um, he said, come and lay your hands on her to heal her. He said, oh, they, they write, and they actually put this in their books, they say Oh, he should have been like the centurion who said, Say but the word, and my servant will be healed. Oh, you need to be like that. 
Well, you know, give him a break. Seriously. Hey, tremendous faith, this man. Tremendous faith. Come and heal her. Well, that's great faith. Believing that Jesus, this man walking around, mind you, come and heal her. Nothing else can help. You're the one. You're the only one. That's, that's great faith. And then Matthew 9.18 says, he, he says to Jesus, because he's been informed that she died, and he says, my daughter has just died. Come, lay your hand on her, and she will live. R come and raise her from the dead. You tell me that's not great faith? I mean, you, have you touched the dead body? Have you felt the coldness? And yet, have you looked in the face of a, of a corpse? Have you looked into someone's face who's died? It's a strange thing, isn't it? It's an awful thing. And to believe that that body could be raised to life? Extraordinary. This is great faith. To believe that this person to whom I'm talking, this man who has a physical body and physical features, and if you asked me, I could have described him. If you came to Jairus and said, what was he like? He could have described it because he's got a body, and he believes that this human being, there's something so extraordinary about him that he can raise someone from the dead. I tell you that that's great faith. Well, we want to have great faith, you and I. We want to be men and women of great faith. We don't want to just plod along. We don't want to just stumble along in the Christian life. We want to be men and women of great faith. We want to pray with great faith. We don't want to pray with our shoulders stooped and our arms hanging down in the Lord. You know, if you could maybe possibly help. You know, No, we want to pray with great faith. You want to pray like you know, John Knox who said, Give me Scotland or I die. No, I, I'm praying not just for little blessings, but I'm praying for the nation. I'm praying for this whole population. I'm praying for you to come and turn this country upside down or right side up. And I believe you can do it. We want to pray with great faith. We want to pray that God will save multitudes. We want to pray that God will transform this country. We want to pray that God will save our government at every level. We want to pray that, you know, on a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening, all over the country, people will be worshiping Christ. I want to pray with great faith. And we want to walk with great faith. We want to, don't want to be those who are, you know, we're afraid of, of every, anything that's coming around the corner next. The psalm says, he is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Ah, we want to be like that. We don't want to be afraid of every shadow that happens to cross our path. There's a boldness that comes with faith because you're trusting yourself to the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said, small faith will bring your souls to heaven. Great faith will bring heaven to your souls. And so we want to be able to, by the grace of God, walk through life and face its challenges and face its disasters and face its annoying little troubles 
and fa- face just the, the shattering experiences. All of these things, we want to face it by faith. Walk by faith, Paul said. Don't walk by sight, he warns us. That's our tendency, to walk by, by, by sight. He says, no, no, walk by faith. Be men and women of great faith, trusting in the Lord. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Isaiah 26. J.C. Ryle said, Let a petition for more faith form a part of all our daily prayers. Right? So every day, you need to pray for more faith. I know I do. As the biggest lessons I've learned in the last three or four years is that I need more faith. My faith is weak and my faith wanes. I need it to wax. I need it to grow. I need to be strong in faith. And I need to plead with God. Spurgeon says, O'Reilly says, do it every day. Ask the Lord every day to increase your faith. Well, that's good advice. If we would travel comfortably in this world, says Ryle, we must believe. You see verse 50? Do not fear. Just believe. Well, maybe you say to me, well, you know, my faith falters. My faith gets weak. I, I don't want to be weak in faith, but that's what happens. It falters. Well, you know, that's what happens to all of us. That's what happened to this man. You see in verse 49 and 50, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Literally, it's, it's stop being afraid and keep believing. Stop being afraid and keep believing. You see, she's died now, and, and I, oh, he must have been shattered. Can you imagine? The, the sentence is set before us rather nonchalantly. The child has died. Stop bothering. Don't bother the master anymore, the teacher anymore. But that is like an explosion in the ears of this man. Can you imagine that news? Your child is dead. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't fear. Stop being afraid. Just keep trusting. Well, that's what the Lord Jesus says to us. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the challenges. Don't be afraid of the difficulties. Don't be afraid of the unknown. Don't be afraid of your weakness. Don't be afraid of the things that are going to come into your life in this world as you follow this pilgrim road. Don't be afraid. Just, just trust me. Keep, keep trusting me. Keep your eyes fixed on me. Well, there's much we can learn from this man, and I hope we've learned some things, but there's more we can learn from Christ. We want to think about the Lord Jesus now for a moment. Miracles are designed, as you well know, I think, to tell us about the Lord Jesus. So what does this miracle tell us about the Lord Jesus? Well, it tells us that He's willing. He's willing. It's wonderful to have a Savior who is willing. It would be a good thing to have a Savior in the world, but we need someone who's willing to help. The Lord Jesus is willing to come alongside of us and to carry our burdens for us. Now you see in verses 41 that Jesus is um, confronted with this man. And um, see in verse 41, 
came a man named Jairus, who was the ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had only one daughter, and about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went. Now, you see, that's the, that's the wonderful phrase in this. He comes, and he's desperate, and he pleads. Well, as Jesus responded affirmatively and started to go with him. As Jesus went. That's astounding and it's wonderful. Matthew says, so Jesus arose and followed him. Now think about that. There was a physical place where Jesus got up and started to follow this man. You can imagine. And the man is leading the way. Because He's got to show where the house is. And so he takes him down this road. And Jesus is following this man. And he says, all right, now we need to turn left here. And they turn left and Jesus follows this man. And and he turns and he says, well, now, we're not far. We're not far now. And Jesus is following him. And that's, that's extraordinary. And what's more, he's following for a purpose. He's following so that he can help. He's saying, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to go right to your house with you. I'm going to go to that place where the grief is so intense, and I'm going to help you. That's just astounding. He's, he's willing to help. And the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, he says, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to be with you. He says this to all of us who are Christians. I'll be with you right to the end of the age. So I'm going to follow you, Christian. I'm going to follow you right down the most difficult path you could ever, ever traverse. I'm going to follow you right down into the deepest pit you could ever find yourself in. And I'll be there, and I'll be there to help you. That's the Lord Jesus. You're not going to face anything on your own. Wow, what a Savior we have. He's willing to help. Secondly, he's wise. He's wise. See, now there's an interruption here. You see in verse 43? Verse 40, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, here is an interruption. In verses 43 to 49 is an interruption. But for this man, for Jairus, time is of the essence. And we can't be dawdling, and we can't be stopping. And now there's a woman. Now there's a woman, and she's also desperate. And now there's someone else now here who who needs help. And Jesus stops. And attends to her. And I'm not going to speculate about what this man thought. Because, uh, you know, that's stupid and unfair. But I can't tell you what I would say. If I was in that situation, and that's my daughter dying there, I know what I'd say to him. I'd say, well, look, this woman, it's been 12 years. She's been waiting 12 years. She can wait a little longer. I might even descend to, I had you first. But you'd do whatever you need to do, and you'd say whatever you needed to say to get him to attend to the most desperate need you can imagine, and get him to your house, and get him to your daughter. But of course, uh, that's not what happens. This man is probably righteous and faithful in his response. I don't know, but... 
we know what happens. There's the delay, and in the delay, the child dies, and then the Lord Jesus raises the child from the dead. And the lesson for us is very, very clear, and that is that Jesus is wise. He knows what he's doing. I know what I think needs to be done, but Jesus really knows what needs to be done. And what happened was the best thing for this man and the best thing for the child and, frankly, the best thing for us because it teaches us lessons. You remember John 11, verses 1 to 7, where Lazarus is very sick, and Jesus loved Lazarus and his two sisters. Lazarus is very sick, and Jesus says, this is not a sickness unto death. But then he waits two days, and Lazarus dies. And when he gets there to Bethany, Mary says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If only you had been here. If, if only you had come when we asked you to come, mind you. If only you would come, we wouldn't be looking at a funeral here. He wouldn't be rotting in the grave. He'd be alive. Now, there's great faith there because she thinks Jesus could have saved her brother from this terrible sickness. So there is faith there. But oh my, there's also a little bit of not faith and not understanding. If only. And I want to say to you that you and I should never, should never say if only. You should never look at your life and say, well, you know, if only. If only this, if, if only things hadn't turned out this way, if only that hadn't happened, you know, I'd be just happy as a lark. And the fact is, you know, you shouldn't say that because the Lord knows best. And we know from Romans 8, 28, that whatever happens in your life is, is, is good and it's for your best. And even if it seems to be absolutely horrific. And look, at one level, it is horrific. Sickness is not to be enjoyed. Death is not to be gloated over. Now, this is, these are terrible things that happen in life, but what we need to understand is to understand things from God's perspective. Ephesians 1.11 and Romans 8.28. And that God looks after us and cares for us and works everything for our good. And so we ought not to say if only this, if only God had ordained things along a line in keeping with my wisdom rather than his. That's what if only means. If you do that, if you do that, you'll find that you'll waste countless hours and you'll be distressed and depressed and despondent and people will see it in your face and in your demeanor. And... Uh, You'll bring dishonor on the Lord Jesus Christ. No, uh, the Lord knows best, you know. In your situation, however difficult and however confusing and however troubling, the Lord is at work for your good and for his glory. He's wise. And then the Lord is powerful. He's powerful. If you look at this chapter, you find the things that the Lord has done, the miracles that he has 
uh, the miracles that have been recorded in this chapter, the miracles are set there before us to show us who Jesus is and to show us what he can do. And in this chapter, you see his mastery over the forces of nature. I shouldn't say nature, creation. See that in 22 to 25? He demonstrates his power over spiritual forces. Remember the Gadarene demoniac. He does what people in the world can't do. He does what the best uh, of the medical establishment is not able to accomplish. That lady who interrupts things, that lady, she spent her living on doctors and they could do nothing for her. But Jesus could. And now death. The statistics about death are pretty imposing. One out of one dies. So death has mastery over everyone except Jesus because he has life in himself and he is the one who gives life. And so he goes and he heals the child. And in verses 50 to 56, that's what we read about. And then it says at the end there that the parents were amazed. (laughs) Again, as I said earlier, I guess so. Raised from the dead. Well, yes, that is amazing. Everybody dies. Except the last generation You know, it might be us. Maybe us. Maybe we'll be caught up in the air like that. That'd be nice. Everybody dies. Some people die in peace. Some people die troubled, in agony. Voltaire, who was such a violent opponent of the Christian faith, he died screaming. Tragic. Maybe you've heard of Casanova. He was a wretched, wretched, vile, immoral character. He died, and his last words were, well, I... um, What's the first bit? But he says, I die as a Christian. Well, did he? I don't think so. No biographer will say he did. But everybody dies, and nobody can stop it, and nobody can save us from it except Jesus. John John 5.25 says that Jesus gives us spiritual life. He says, uh, the Lord Jesus says in John 5, 25, I speak and they rise from the dead. That's what happened. That's what happened to you. You read this, you say, oh, I'd love to have been there. See that resurrection, to see that speaking and then she rises from the dead. Well, you were there at your resurrection, your spiritual. You were right there. You, You remember that. I remember. I know the room I was in. I know the book I was reading was the Bible. I know the Gospel of John I was reading. And somehow between chapter 1 and chapter 21... I rose from the dead. And you had that moment. Maybe you can't remember the moment. Maybe it's uh, shrouded in a wonderful experience that's just part and parcel of the Christian life in a Christian home in a Christian church. It doesn't matter. You've been raised. If you're a Christian today, you've been raised from the dead. The Lord Jesus also gives us eternal life in John 5, 28 and 29. Those people who are his, one day he will speak and they will rise from the dead and have perfect souls and perfect bodies. One day the Lord Jesus is going to speak and and Marilyn Hudson will rise from the dead and Ruth Richards will rise from the dead and Bill Payne will rise from the dead. 
Ted Engrove will rise from the dead. These are some couple of preachers that some of us remember. Well, you know, the Lord Jesus can do that. That's power. And then, lastly, he's caring. He's caring. In verse 55, it says that he uh, raises her from the dead, and then he says, well, now you make sure she has something to eat. I just find that just astonishing. The Lord commands that she be given food to eat. I, I would think, I would think raising her from the dead. Well, that's enough. You've done enough. <laughs> you know? Give her some bread. Yeah, don't worry about that. She's alive. Well, the Lord is like that. And every detail of your life, He cares about. In Psalm 55 and in 1 Peter 5, we're told, cast your cares on Him because He cares for you. Even this, yeah. Yeah, even that. Even, even the, little, the little girl, oh, she might be hungry. Give her something to eat. Jesus says in Matthew 6, look at the birds of the air. <clears throat> they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And you are more valuable than they are. He cares. Well, that's a wonderful Savior we have. He is willing to help. And he knows how best to help because he's wise. And he's able to help because he's powerful. And he cares. So he's willing to help. So you and I, as they say, you know, we're sitting pretty because we're in the hands of Christ. Now I need to rush along and just give you some lessons. I'll just give it to them give them to you briefly. The first is that trouble will come. You know, trouble will come. To all of God's people, trouble comes. Peter says, 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. It's come to test you, these, these trials. It's come to test you. And he says, don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. Like, understand Gain this wisdom. This is going to happen. You're not going to float to heaven on flowery beds of ease. You know, I'm not opposed to that. But we're told in the Bible it's not going to happen, so stop. Like, stop looking for that. And this whole episode is orchestrated by Christ. Do you think the Lord Jesus was shocked by this woman who came along? Do you think this was outside of his plan and he had to find some contingency plan? No. This is all ordained. And so he knows exactly. He's ordained everything. And these things come then with a good purpose. And they lead to a glorious end. So trouble will come. We, we need to learn that. Secondly, faith must grow. Faith has to grow. Remember, we were advised by Ryle to, to pray daily for more faith. Jesus said, or rather the disciples say, Lord, increase our faith. And so we want to, we want to grow in terms of faith. We want to be more and more men and women of, of faith, men and women of great faith. How do you do that, by the way? Well, you read your Bible, 
and you focus on God. Because to know Him is to trust Him. So learn more about God. Study God. Stare into the face of God more consistently, more profoundly, more persistently. Stare at God. Look at God. Learn about God. Bask in the presence of God. And you'll grow in terms of your faith in God. To know Him is to trust Him. So learn more about God. Thirdly, everybody's equal. Everybody's equal. If you, if you look at the context here, you see all kinds of people standing before God, all kinds of people standing before the Lord Jesus Christ from different strata of society. And you see a man who's demon-possessed. So here's a character. He's running around naked in the cemetery. And he's indwelt by and possessed by demons. And then there's a woman. Oh, she's just a face in the crowd. And she's unclean. And then there's a man who's, well, he's respected by everybody. He's a ruler. There's a centurion. There's all kinds of people. But before the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're standing around the Lord Jesus, it's a level playing field. Everything's the same. We're all standing on the same ground. We're all poor sinners in need of grace. So you must never think that there's not a place for you. You must never think you're, well, I'm not as good as them. You must never think that my sin is so bad I can't find life and forgiveness in Jesus. No, we're all on the same ground. We're all on the same level. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. It doesn't matter what your color is. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what your nationality is. It doesn't matter one whit what you have in the bank. It doesn't matter if everybody in the world thinks you're top-notch. You're a sinner before the holy God. And, and so we all come to God only through Jesus. And so you must never think there's not, a, there's not hope for you. You must never imagine that, that you have to be a certain type of person you have to have achieved a certain amount of things in order to qualify? No, Jesus saves sinners. He saves desperate people. He saves those who have no hope. He comes for those who are in a bad way. And he rescues them. So you can come today. You will be saved. Care for souls. That's a fourth lesson, a fourth piece of counsel we can draw from this. Let's follow this man, this, this, this Jairus. Let's be like him. And he comes and he brings someone in need to Jesus. I've talked about this before. I just want to underline this. Let's bring sinners to the Lord. Let's pray. Let's be men and women of prayer. Let's, well, let me tell you about a man named John Oxtoby who was a, was a Methodist lay preacher in, in Yorkshire in the 1800s. And they say that on his deathbed, so now this man's about to die. They say his last words were, Lord, please save souls. Can you imagine on your deathbed? I know what I'm like on my sickbed, and I'm thinking about me. I was trying to, trying to make my life a little better. <laughs> just pleading with God, just, you know, take away this thing that's making me uncomfortable. 
That's a good example, isn't it? As you're dying, Lord, save souls. So let's be like that. And then lastly, we sleep too. We sleep too. You know, the Lord Jesus says of this little girl, he says, do not weep. She's not dead, but she's sleeping. Don't, don't weep because she's not dead, she's sleeping. And of course, it says that they mocked him. They laughed him to scorn, as we used to say. And of course, um, she was dead. What does he say? She's not dead. She's just sleeping. Well, we know she was dead, and we know the Lord Jesus knew she was dead because it says in verse 56, 55, her spirit returned. Well, that's what death is, and the body and soul are separated. So, um, of course she was dead. Why does he say that then? Well, he's saying, no, she's sleeping because I'm about to raise her in a moment. So this is kind of like a sleep. That's all that means. She's not dead because I'm going to raise her from the dead in a few seconds. This is like a sleep. And that's the way it is for Christians, you know. Probably most of us here are going to die. Maybe some of you will be around when the Lord Jesus comes back, but most of us are going to die. And the Bible says it's a, it's a sleep. They fall asleep. Well, why is that? Well, in a few moments, he's going to raise us. Well, that's tremendous. Maybe I'll do your funeral, you know, and I'll know she's going to be raised. He's going to be raised. Maybe you stand at my burial site. No, he's going to be raised. He died in Christ. How wonderful to die in Christ, because then one day we'll be raised, body and soul. And then, as we were reminded earlier, we will always be with the Lord. What a great God we have. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for who your Son is. We thank you for the salvation that is ours in him. And we praise you today then. In Jesus' name, amen.